Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. It always is a great honor and privilege to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. And we have a few fascinating things to discuss today. Um, we're in the month of Adar, Mishinichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha. When the month of Adar arrives, we increase in our joy. It's a good time for the Jewish people. It's a good month for Klal Yisrael. And I want to mention a few yacht sites which are uh, important to talk about at this time. Firstly, today is the Ches Adar. Today is the eighth day of the month of Adar. It's Adar Rishon. This year is a leap year. There are two Adars. Um, this year, and we um, and therefore, and we only have Purim in the second Adar. So usually Purim is in Adar, the 14th of Adar, but uh, when there's a leap year, Purim always in the, is in the second Adar because we need to have 30 days between um, Purim and Pesach. Smicha Geula Geula says the Gemara that we um, connect the two times of redemption for the Jewish people. So today is the eighth of Adar Aleph. And yesterday was the seventh of Adar Aleph. Yesterday was the Yotzad of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the greatest human being who's ever lived in the world. As we know, Moshe was at, born at a time when Egypt, in Egypt, when Pharaoh was, he, his astrologers told him that the savior of the Jews is being born. And therefore Pharaoh, and he, he instructed his soldiers, his very mighty army, to find all the newborn Jewish boys and to throw them into the Nile, to murder them. The first Holocaust um, and uh, annihilation of Jews, of Jewish infants, and Moshe's, um, Moshe's born prematurely, so the soldiers didn't, weren't coming around at that time. They didn't expect his mother to give birth because they monitored and tracked all the Jewish women. And his sister then takes this newborn child and hides him in the basket amongst the reeds Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the river and hears this baby crying and stretches her hand out and sees this very beautiful infant in this basket who has a great light, is really emanating a radiance that's powerful and she wants to take him home with her. She asks her father, Pharaoh, who says, okay, my, my darling child, you can have this mascot, this gift and keep this child. And uh, Moshe's mother then feeds him, is his nurse, and nurses him each day, and therefore he still has contact with his family. Moshe becomes very protective of the Jewish people and sees that Jews were being discriminated against and being persecuted. He stands up for his people, and he's then, he kills an Egyptian who is beating Jews, and he therefore has to flee the country, and he marries the daughter of Yisro, um, whose name is Tzipora, uh, and he's in the field with Yisro's flock, and God appears to him at the burning bush and instructs him to go back to Egypt to lead the Jewish people out of the bondage of Egypt, and Moshe leads the Jewish people through the ten plagues, 
and the leaving of Egypt and the splitting of the sea. And then 40 days later, Moshe goes up Mount Sinai, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he is like a malach, like an angel, and receives the Torah from God. God, of course, the only time in, the, in human history where the creator of the universe has be, reveals himself to an entire nation. That's what happens at Mount Sinai. Moses then goes up and receives the entire Torah, Koha Torah Kula, comes down 40 days later, leads the Jewish people through the desert, and he's not able to take them into the land um, and dies just before the Jewish people enter into the land 40 years later. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest prophet that the world has ever seen. All the other prophets were, uh, the Gemara says, had an aspaklaria, a vision that's not clear, whereas Moshe Rabbeinu's aspaklaria was meira, was clear. He had a very clear vision of God. He could speak to Hashem pe al pe. Um, directly like we speak to each other, uh, the only prophet ever to be able to do that. And Moshe Rabbeinu's level was unrivaled and unmatched in the history of the world. And so we remember the great holy Moshe Rabbeinu and the seventh of Adar, which is the day Moshe was born and the day he died 120 years later. And that's why we say Adameh Ve'esrim, you should be able to live 120 years like Moshe Rabbeinu. So, of course, all of Klai Yisrael is inspired by Moshe's example, the most humble of all human beings. The Hashem himself says that Moshe was an Eved Hashem, the greatest compliment anybody can ever um, receive, that he was an Eved Hashem. We all try and be an Eved Hashem, a true servant of God, of the Creator, and we all follow in the path of Moshe, bask in his light and try and emulate his example. Um, the leader of the Jewish people, the one who received the Torah and the one who spoke to God, Peh Al Peh. So that was yesterday, Zayin Adar. But there are two other Yotzites that I'd like to mention and uh, Yotzites of modern day leaders of the Jewish people. One is the Yotzite of Menachem Begin. And the other is the Yotzad of Levi Eshkol. Menachem Begin was Prime Minister of Israel and he died in 1992. His Yotzad was actually this past Shabbos on the 4th of Adar. And so I'd like to speak in detail about Menachem Begin, about his life, about his tremendous contribution to the Jewish people. And today, the 8th of Adar is the Yotzad of Levi Eshkol, who was also a Prime Minister of Israel and also a person who made a great contribution to the Jewish people. So let's start out with Menachem Begin. Um, Begin was born in 1913 in the town of Brisk, uh, Brisk, Litovsk, uh, which was, you know, sometimes part of Lithuania, sometimes part of Poland. Um, and Menachem Begin came from an observant Jewish home. His parents were observant Jews. His grandfather, actually, interestingly enough, was the Gabai of the main shul in Brisk. And there are some interesting stories about that. Menachem Begin was given a authentic Jewish education. He went to Cheda as a young child. And his family were religious Zionists, very strong religious Zionists. And they sent him to a school in Poland, um, which was actually run by Mizrahi at the time. And uh, he too became a very ardent religious Zionist. And uh, Begin was a, a very good scholar. 
he had a great mind, very inquisitive mind, and he had a broad education. He went to university in Poland. He taught himself Polish. He was somebody who was fascinated in all areas of human endeavor and thought and uh, was a very big reader too. And so he really had a classical education. So we will talk in a moment when we come back about the trajectory of Begin's life from 1920 and onwards. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. talking about Menachem Begin, his yacht site was this last Shabbos on the 4th of Adar and Begin made a remarkable contribution to the Jewish people and it's worthwhile remembering and understanding his times, his courage and his tremendous commitment to love for the Jewish people. In 1920, after World War I, there was a riot in Jerusalem by Arabs against the Jews and also against the British who were uh, in control of Palestine at the time. And many Jews were killed in the riots. The British put down, very violently put down those riots, and many Arabs were killed also. At the time, there was a Jew by the name of Vladimir, his Hebrew name is Zev Jabotinsky. He had moved to Eretz Israel before World War I from Poland, and he was convicted by the British of being a a instigator, a terrorist, and um, he was then um, exiled by, he was deported by the British um, back to Poland. Now Jabotinsky was of the firm belief that the only way to establish a Jewish state would be through the sword, would be through blood, sweat and tears, and uh, he never trusted the British all along. And the British then, you know, instead of uh, clamping down on the Arabs, they deported Jabotinsky as a consequence of those riots. And he then went back to Poland. After World War I, the, the Labour Zionists were the dominant force in the Zionist movement. They started the Hishtadrut, um, the Labour Union, and they ran the economy, and they also controlled the Jewish agency. Many of them were communists. and. Uh, Many of them were, were quite, you know, they were socialists, they were communists, and they controlled the Zionist movement at the time. They set up the kibbutz movement, which was actually one of the only successful models of communism in the world. It now also collapsed like communism because communism is a system that really goes against human nature and uh, re results in a lot of oppression and a lot of suffering and a lot of uh, hardship for for individuals in those systems. There's actually not one single exception to that in the world. Every single communist system re results in a oppressive regime that causes the poverty and suffering of millions of, of people, of those that are, live in those countries. So it really baffles the mind how individuals still want to implement communism when they've seen how it's a complete failure wherever it's been tried. But anyway, so the Zionist movement at the time was dominated also by left-wing communists, and Jabotinsky was very much against them. Um, the, the, the mainstream Zionist movement felt that the way forward 
for the world would be communism and the way forward for the Jewish people would be a Jewish state under British control. Uh, Jabotinsky disagreed with both of those points. He felt that didn't trust the British. He felt the British wouldn't deliver on their promises in the Balfour Declaration. And he felt that the communist way was not correct and would lead to the ultimate collapse of the society and the suffering of its citizens. And he therefore believed in a capitalist, capitalist system and a capitalist economy. Now, Jabotinsky was a great orator and he really moved audiences that he spoke to very deeply. He was very popular um, wherever he went and he actually organized the Jewish Brigade um, in World War I that were fought together with the British. He, the Jewish Brigade um, together he organized it with Trumpeldor who was also a famous uh, Joseph Trumpeldor, a famous uh, soldier in the British, in the Jewish Legion of the British Army. Um, so together they started that. And that actually, interestingly enough, became the nucleus of the Haganah. The was the you know follow-on from the Jewish Legion in the British Army in World War One. So he um, uh, back in Poland, he uh, uh, was now deported by the British from Palestine in the 1920s, and he became unfortunately a prophet of doom. He was prophetic in the way he saw things, Jabotinsky. But he said to the Jews of Poland and of Europe that Europe would be a graveyard for the Jews and the Jews would have, must leave Europe. And their future in Europe was bleak. And unless they, unless they left, they would be annihilated by the European population. Nobody wants to hear such a beautiful message, such, you know, such a pessimistic view. And so he was marginalized by the mainstream Jewish movements and Jewish organizations in Europe, but such was the message of Jabotinsky. And he created what was known as the revisionist Zionist movement. Revisionist means that so he broke away from the left-wing Zionists, the Zionists that were communists and socialists, and he revisionist is because he revised Herzl's vision of Zionism. And um, he started a uh, although they were the majority of the Zionist movement, they were a very loud, a very vocal, not majority, minority, a very vocal minority within the Zionist movement with the revisionist Zionists. He started a youth group called Beta, and um, that was named after the last city of the Bar Kokhba rebellion against the Romans called Beta. And Begin became a member of Beta in Poland. Um, he heard Jabotinsky, he was very moved by Jabotinsky and became one of the principal disciples of Jabotinsky. And Begin too fervently believed that the salvation of the Jewish people would be through the revisionist Zionist movement. Uh, Begin also was a great orator. He spoke Yiddish, he spoke Hebrew, he spoke Polish, and he was viewed by the mainstream left-wing Zionist movement as an irritation, as a you know, he was a bit of a thorn in their sides, even in Europe, in in the early years before World War Two. In 1939, Jabotinsky's prophecy materialized, and we see that Poland was divided between the Nazis and the Russians. Begin, to his good fortune, was at the time of the first of September 1949, when World War Two broke out 
and the Nazis moved into and attacked Russia, attacked Poland. So Begin was in the Russian part of Poland, and that really saved his life. Unlike the rest of his family, who were caught in the German side, he was in university and had happened to be on the Russian side, and the rest of his family was caught in the clutches of the Nazis, and they were all murdered in the Shoah. His parents, his brother, his grandparents, his cousins were all murdered by the Nazis. Begin was viewed by the Russians, by the NKVD, the Russian secret police. He was also viewed as an enemy of the state. They weren't very happy with him either. He was arrested by them. He was interrogated as a capitalist. He was charged. He had a long charge sheet as a spy, as a traitor. And uh, he was sent to the Gulag. The Russians sent many, many Poles to the Gulag. Anybody they saw as a threat to the occupation. And Begin actually wrote a book. I, I have it. It's called White Nights. And he details his two years in the Gulag. And all those sent to the Gulag were really essentially sent to die. Um, they had, um, you know, you die of starvation, die of malnutrition, die of disease. Millions died in the Russian gulags. The, the communists were very brutal and uh, caused and led to the death of millions and millions of people. As you know, Stalin was one of the most evil individuals in the history of the world. Millions died at the hands of Stalin and the hands of the communists, which is consistent with um, communist regimes around the world. And uh, that was all until June 1941. June 1941, as we know, Hitler invades the USSR. Hitler turns his forces east. He invades the, the Russians. He also hated the Bolsheviks. And he saw communism as a Jewish invention. And he wanted to dominate Russia. The Soviets now are turned on by their ally, Hitler. And they need help. They need help from Britain. They need help from the United States. It's now June 1941. We know the, the United States are not yet in the war. Britain is in the war, but the United States are not. It'll be six months until the United States enter World War II when they're attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. But Churchill, who's very anti-communist, Churchill always was, from the beginning to the end, was uh, saw the dangers of communism, saw the suffering that communism brings to humanity, and he opposed the communists with all he could throughout his career. But Churchill now takes a turn, and he helps the Russians with supplies. He gave a famous speech in Parliament where he said he would even work with the devil to defeat Hitler. And um, he, he does agree to help the Russians with much-needed military supplies, but he does so on condition that they release all Polish citizens that were sent to the Gulag. Um, hit, uh, Churchill was, you know, that, that's what brought Britain into the war because he said that if Germany attacked Poland, they would they would um, declare war on Germany, and so he he was quite uh, quite protective of Poland and Polish citizens and said that they would only help the Russians if the Poles who were in the Gulag were released, and um, he then took those Poles, uh, Churchill, and turned them into an organized army. They were That army was run by General Anders, and um, Begin was part of that. So Begin was then, he was stuck in the Gulag, and he was probably going to die like the rest of his fellow Poles. But because Churchill had arranged for their release, he now became, and all the 
those that could fight that were of an age that they could be um, enter into military service were now they were now brought into this new force that was developed. They were, there was conscription of all those that were able to fight into this new army. And they were now sent to, to North Africa. The, the British wanted them to fight against the Nazis in North Africa to support Montgomery and his troops. And they were sent um, to North Africa via Turkey, through Syria, through Palestine, and to Egypt. Now, isn't that unbelievable? Begin's part of this force. And Bacon now, with his force, enters into Palestine. There are two versions of what happened next. Some say Bacon just disappeared and he left the army to remain in Palestine. Others say that he actually had permission from General Anders. Nobody really knows. And Bacon didn't dis ever disclose. He was a very clever politician. He never disclosed what actually happened over there. So Bacon is now in Palestine. And it is at the heart of World War II. And he sees the the cruelty and hypocrisy of Britain and he understands that Britain now restricts immigration into Palestine with their 1939 white paper to only 15,000 Jews a year and there are millions of Jews that are facing annihilation that are being murdered by the Nazis and the British won't let them into Palestine and Begin obviously is completely outraged at that situation and he founds an organization called Etzel, Irgun Sava'e Le'umi, which means the, the organization of defense for the nation. And called Etzel, but it became known as Irgun, which is the first word of, of, the, of that title. And the, it was a breakaway from the Irgun called Lechi, which stands for Loichme Cheirus Israel, the fighters of the freedom of Israel. And the British called them the Stern Gang because their founder was Avram Stern. And they were far more opposed to the British than the Haganah. The Haganah, which was the movement um, of the mainstream Zionists, of the left-wing Zionists, the Labour Zionists. And they worked with the British. They didn't oppose the British and felt that the, way, the, the pathway to achieve um, a Jewish state would be together to cooperate with the British. But... The Irgun and the Lehi disagreed completely, and they were very opposed to the British, and they they fought the British. They fought them militarily. Um, in 1944, um, they assassinated Lord Moyen, who was the High Commissioner of the Middle East, and the British caught the assassins and hung them. Um, but they showed, the, the Irgun, the Lehi, showed the determination of the Zionists, of this part of the Zionist movement, to... Um, to fight against the British and to bring about an independence of the for the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Uh, Begin was obviously very quickly, very quickly um, picked out by the British and identified as one of the leaders of the revisionist Zionist movement. He was hunted down by the British. There was a bounty on his head. He very famously said, I'm worth a lot more than that, even though it was a large bounty. But he was a master of disguise, and uh, he disguised himself first of all as a banker, and then as a Hasidic rabbi, he called himself Chaim Sosava. He lived in the middle of Tel Aviv. He went out every day, walked around in the street, and the British didn't see him because he was dressed up as a Hasidic rabbi. And the reason is because he blended in, blended it in very well. He, he understood the nuance of that. That's where he came from. That's how he was brought up in such a community, so he very easily integrated into the 
um, profile of a Hasidic rabbi. He spoke Yiddish, he went to David in the Shtibel, and that's how he maintained his anonymity from the British, and they never caught him. After the war, um, the horrors of the Holocaust were exposed, were revealed, and uh, it only pushed Begin further. He felt very strongly that the only hope for the Jewish people would be a Jewish state in the land of Israel. The Arabs rioted after World War II in 47 and 48, and the Irgun felt that it was the, the, the way forward would be to drive the British out of Palestine, and they um, were prepared to resort to violence in order to achieve that goal, um, including the, the notorious bombing of the King David Hotel. Um, they was opposed by the Haganah, opposed by Ben-Gurion. They did call and they warned them. That was the, uh, the headquarters of the British Army in, in, um, in Palestine at the time. And they did call them to say that there would be a bomb in a half an hour. And uh, they blew up the, the, a wing of the King David Hotel. The, 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 their uh, ferocious opposition to... Um, to the British, they, they, they were very, very strong in the opposition. And as we mentioned, they turned to military means to express that. That really did actually result in the British succumbing. The British at the time had 100,000 soldiers in Israel, but the British Empire was bankrupt. They were pulling out of India and other colonies. And the foreign minister of Britain was an anti-Semite by the name of Bevan, Anthony Bevan. And he said that he actually said that Britain would leave. So the, the Jews were such a thorn in the side of the British, particularly the Irgun, and they said it's not worth a while, I'll leave. But Bevan thought that the Arabs would then take over. They had actually armed the Arabs, and the Jews would face annihilation. They would beg the British to come back in and to protect them and to save them. And then the British would run and still control Palestine, but it would be a humanitarian act on the part of Britain, and they would then be supported by the world, they'll be funded by the United States in order to be able to, so, so, so Britain still wanted to control Palestine, but they couldn't afford it anymore. So Bevan's very sly plan was they'll move out, the Arabs would threaten, they would annihilate the Jews, they'd have to step in to save the Jews, and then they would be able to still control Palestine, but this time they would be funded by the United States and by the rest of the world, by the United Nations. So that was Bevan's plan. In 47 and 48 was the War of Independence, and against all odds, the Jews won. We have our revo revisionist historians that claim that the Jews were a more powerful force, and they, you know, anyway, we're going to win. That is, that's not true. That really is far from the truth. Um, the, the Jews uh, thought at the time that there was going to be a second Holocaust just a few years later and that the Jews in Palestine would be wiped out because they were completely outnumbered, both in terms of arms and in terms of soldiers and in terms of training, and miraculously, absolutely miraculously, they were successful and they were victorious and they were able to, um, to, to, to uh, win the, the, this, that famous war of independence. Ben-Gurion then said that we need to develop one single army, Tzahal, that all the Jewish groups should merge into one single army and uh, the Irgun should dissolve. And Begin agreed with that. And he did uh, then merge the Irgun into Tzahal and became one single unifying force 
um, which would be the army of Israel, the Tzavah tzav- Haganah Yisrael Tzachah. You stay with us, we'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 Chai FM. We're talking about Menachem Begin and the Irgun. Um, after the War of Independence, which was miraculously won by, by Israel, Ben-Gurion called upon all the different uh, military groups that were active in Israel at the time to come together and unite under a single umbrella called Tzahal Tzavah Haganal Yisrael, the army for the defense of Israel, Israeli Defense Force, the IDF. And Menachem Begin, who was the head of the uh, Irgun, agreed to do so. Um, however, there was a very sad event that took place at that time. There was a ship called the um, Atalina. The Atalina was a ship that had arms that the Irgun had arranged. And um, uh, Begin wanted still to unload these arms and under the auspices of the Irgun. And Ben-Gurion felt that now that uh, Tzahal, the IDF, had been formed, so it shouldn't be um, done so by the Irgun. And they warned the Atalina uh, that they would actually fire upon them unless um, the, everybody left the ship. And uh, the unloading continued to take place and um, Sahal began to fire shells upon the ship. In fact, the commanding officer was Ariel Sharon who did so, which is unbelievable how all these figures were involved um, throughout the different times. And uh, many people were killed. The ship blew up. Uh, Menachem Begin actually jumped off. He was on the ship at the time. He uh, jumped off and he survived. But from that point, Ben-Gurion um, had a tremendous amount of animosity towards Begin. He felt that Begin was, was tricking him and was, uh, was being dishonest with him. Begin uh, said there was not the, the, the intention at all. And these arms would be used by the IDF. The Irgun would give them to the IDF. But anyway, we see that from that point on, Begin and and uh, particularly coming from Ben Gurion, had a lot of uh, anger towards Begin. The Irgun then joins the IDF and dismantles as a military group, and Begin goes into politics and he starts his political party called Khairut. And he had hoped that in the first elections they would have a significant showing, but they were not very. Um, well represented and received 14 mandates versus 40 for Labour. And the Labour then became the ruling party in the land of Israel for the next 40 years. Uh, Ben-Gurion, to his credit, kept out the communists and sides with the West, which Baruch Hashem was a very smart move. Only after the fall of the Soviet Union do we see how Russia was put out by that, the Soviet Union, um, from that point on. Uh, was very much behind the destruction of Israel and did everything they could to undermine and destroy Israel. The new uh, uh, Begin is now the opposition in the Knesset and he see, is seen as a pariah, as a fringe figure, but he keeps going and um, he uh, continues to be the leader of the opposition and uh, then the Six-Day War takes place and the government uh, decides, Levi Eshkol, whose Yotzad it is today, as I mentioned earlier, and um, he was the prime minister of the time, and he 
creates a unity government and during this just before the six-day war in which he includes Begin which was a very significant move in the political career of Begin because career of Begin because up until then he had been seen as a fringe figure as a pariah but now he's a minister in the government and so he's now seen more as mainstream within the psyche of the Israeli population of the citizens of Israel and that has significant ramifications for Begin going forward and we then have the 73 war which was um, start, started out being a disaster for Israel. There are unfortunately many casualties, 2,600 soldiers are killed, and although Israel is able to turn it around, but still it is seen as a major um, mishap within Tzahal, and the confidence of Israel was severely, uh, was dealt with a very severe blow, uh, and there was a lot of political turmoil after the Yom Kippur War of the 73 war, the government lost its credibility, and in the elections in 1977, Begin wins the majority. It's called the revolution by many, and he forms the government together with the religious parties. And Begin has three uh, clear goals. His motivation is firstly to decentralize the economy, for it not to be a socialist economy, but to be a capitalist market in Israel, which was very significant for for Israel at the time, because Israel was suffering and struggling economically, like all socialist economies do. Um, secondly, Begin wanted uh, to minimize the rift between the secular and the religious, um, which was quite pronounced at the time in Israel. And thirdly, he wants to seek peace with any Arab neighbors that are open to such ideas. And he receives overtures from Sadat, who's the president of Egypt, and who actually started the Yom Kippur War. Nonetheless, Sadat wants to uh, speak to the Israeli Knesset, and Begin invites him to do so. He comes to make a, a speech which is actually, you know, quite a, a landmark occasion in the history of the Middle East. He makes, uh, Sadat makes a very hard line speak in the speech in the Knesset, but the fact that he came was a major shift of the time um, in the Middle East. And uh, President Carter, who was a very dismal president in America, but nonetheless he pursued the opportunity for peace. He facilitated the talks at Camp David, and um, peace is made between Israel and Egypt. And that peace has lasted for over 40 years. It's been through many difficult times, many turbulent storms have um, have been around, but the peace is still held, which is an amazing thing. And uh, Begin, on the lawn of the White House, puts on his kippah, and he says the bracha of Sheikh Yana, which is a, really an amazing thing, and one of his great achievements in his political career. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about the great leader of the Jewish people, Menachem Begin, whose yotzad it was this past Shabbos. Begin, one of his great achievements in his career was achieving peace between Israel and Egypt, a peace that has held for more than 30 year, more than 40 years, despite many challenges and tests along the way. 
One of Bacon's other great achievements was his getting LL not to fly on Shabbos. LL was a government was a government-run airline which never made a profit until it became private. Like most uh, enterprises that are run by the government, they are not efficiently run. But at, so at the time, Bacon had the ability to do so, and he said the greatest skill Hashem was for LL, the Israeli airlines, to be flying on Shabbos. And so he, and the reason why LL to this day, even though now it's a private company, um, that doesn't fly on Shabbos is as a result of Bagan's efforts to do so. Bagan was, uh, he, he was then re-elected as prime minister and his wife passed away quite soon after his re-election. He was very close, he, he had a, an excellent marriage, him and his wife were very, very uh, connected and Belgen, Bagan fell into a depression after the passing of his wife, Aliza. And six months later, he resigned as the Prime Minister of Israel. He went into seclusion until his passing in 1992, with very few public appearances, appearances after that point. Begin requested that he be buried in Har not Har Hutzel. Most uh, Prime Ministers are buried in Har Hutzel with the, all the fanfare of a leader of the country. But uh, he didn't want that bacon. He wanted to be buried in Harazesim as a normal traditional Jew. That's Jew, that's where Elisa was buried, that's where some of his ancestors were buried. And so he died the way he was born, as a traditional Jew. And he really was one of the great leaders of the Jewish people. He uh, had a tremendous love for the Jewish people. He risked his life for the Jewish people. Yehuda Avner, who was his speechwriter, writes in his famous book, The Prime Ministers, that Menachem Begin was the most Jewish of all the prime ministers. So he wasn't perfect, but he did do accomplish great things, and he injected within Israel a Jewish spirit, um, which was far different to what Israel would have looked like, like if the, the secular Zionists, if the left-wing Zionists remained in power in Israel. And so he's very fondly remembered by many parts of the Jewish people, and he really did make a tremendous difference to the Jewish people in the 20th century. And Menachem Begin helped create what we have today in the land of Israel. And so we remember his serious nefesh, his self-sacrifice, and his tremendous love and commitment to the Jewish people. Thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful day.